What a combination. What a glorious combination we just sang about. Sovereign and faith. Wouldn't be much good to be faithful if you're not sovereign. Mm -hmm. You'd be scary. God was sovereign and not faithful. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, as we continue preaching our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're preaching our way towards Jerusalem. And as you turn to Matthew 20, I want you to think about this haunting moment. That's in John 18. John 18.4 describes the very moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is betrayed. When he's betrayed by Judas and they come and they bind him and they take him away to the Jews. Right, right as Judas and his band of soldiers arrive to get Jesus, the text says, in Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward. It says Jesus knew all that would happen to him. And knowing all that would happen to him, he stepped forward. Now when you think about that, when you think about what, what if you knew, what if you knew all that would happen to you? I mean, everything. All the details. What if you knew that? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Would that be an easy thing or a hard thing? And I guess part of that would depend on the source. How do I know all that's going to happen to me? Is the source some $10 fortune teller or is the source God's? What if the source of all the future details of your life and even your death, what if the source of those details was actually God? What would you do? Would you do like Jesus? And step forward? Embrace every moment? Would you walk in the good works that God had prepared beforehand for you? Would you step forward? Or would you try to sidestep God's sovereignty, God's plan. If you knew the time, the place, and the details of your own death, would you try to avoid it? What if you knew everything that's going to happen to you? Well, Jesus did. Jesus knew all that would happen to him, and Jesus fulfilled all that would happen to him with love and joy. An incredible resolve. And that's what I want you to see from this text today. I pray that you would see more of the glory of Christ, not only in his suffering that he's describing, but in his incredible resolve to accomplish the will of his Father and to save you and me, to save sinners. Let's pray for that. Father, we have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. We have come to confess with Peter that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of the living God, the Christ. And we know that flesh and blood did not reveal that to us, that you did. Pray that you would do that again for someone else right now today. You would show them the glory of Christ. Lord Jesus, these are your words. This is your story. And we desire to see you glorified. So show us your glory. 
Show us your glory in this one moment as you make your way towards the cross that gave us life. Be magnified in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And delivered him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. I want us to look at this short little paragraph by asking and answering these questions. These five questions beginning with, how did Jesus know? How did Jesus know all that would happen to him? Here they are on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus is again telling them all that would happen to him before it actually happened. He's giving them details of what's about to happen before it actually happens. And so the question is, how does he do that? How does he know that? Don't be so quick to answer that question. Well, Jesus is God. He knows everything. Don't be so quick to answer that way. Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Without beginning or without end, He is the uncreated One who created all things. He's eternal and holy and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-wise and born in a manger. Weak and tired and hungry and without knowledge. Jesus is God in the flesh with two natures. Fully God and fully man. And when we say fully man, we mean fully man. A man who would die. A man who had to walk everywhere. A man who had to eat and had to drink in order to survive. A man who, like the writer of Hebrews says, had to be made like us in every respect. The eternal Son of God intentionally and purposely humbled Himself beyond all imagination. Subjecting Himself to all the afflictions of this fallen world and subjecting Himself to all the limitations of our human nature. And the wonder of all that is only magnified when you understand why did He do that? Hebrews again says He had to. He had to be made like us in every respect. In other words, it's necessary. It was necessary. He had to live out a full and perfect life as our representative in order to save us. Not only have we sinned against God, but we have also fallen short. We have failed to love and serve God in the way He deserves to be loved and served. We need a substitute. We need a real substitute. One that will live out a life fully pleasing to God. In every stage of life, in every difficult situation. And we need a substitute to die for our crimes. To die for our sins. We need a real substitute. A substitute in life and a substitute in death. This is why Jesus is fully God 
and fully man for us. The Son of God became a real man. A real man with a finite mind. One who had to learn. Who had to learn everything. When Jesus was born in the manger 2,000 years ago, He was just like us except without sin. According to His human nature, He did not know the secrets of the universe. He didn't know how to read and write. He didn't know how to talk. He had to grow. He had to learn. Jesus is a real man who grew in wisdom from the Scriptures. That's what the Bible teaches about Christ in His humanity. Luke chapter 2, in the birth narrative, 40 days after Jesus is born, it says that the child grew. He grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And then a paragraph later, it says Jesus increased in wisdom. From birth as a man, Jesus grew in wisdom. How did he grow in wisdom? Not by attending Ivy League schools, but from the scriptures. Remember that story? He's 12 years old. He's in the temple for three days. He's blowing people's minds with his understanding of the Scripture. So, in one sense, Jesus learned the Scriptures just like us, but at the same time, as God's anointed Son, He grew in wisdom from the Scriptures in an extraordinary, one-of-a-kind way. And so, hold those two things together simultaneously and be filled with wonder at how the man Christ Jesus increased in wisdom from the Scriptures. He learned the Scriptures just like us, and He learned the Scriptures like no other. Both of them. You know what? Even His learning the Scriptures was prophesied in the Old Testament. Listen to this from from one of the servant songs in Isaiah, the third servant song. Just imagine a young Jesus being taught daily by God from the Scriptures. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the Word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious, turned not back. And so his whole life, Jesus is being taught and he grew in wisdom from the scriptures. So what's he learning from the scriptures? What are the scriptures about? The scriptures are about Jesus. Jesus himself says this multiple times in John 5. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And so the Scriptures are about Jesus but in a very real sense they are also for Jesus. The Scriptures are for us but the Scriptures are also for Jesus. This is the means by which Christ increased in wisdom. This is the means by which He learned obedience, as Hebrews says. And this is the means. The Scriptures were the means by which Jesus learned about Himself and came to know all that would happen. Can you imagine that? You find a book that just captivates you. A book that's filled with wisdom. A book that you, where you learn and grow every time you read it. And somewhere along the way, you begin to read this book in a very personal way. And you grow to realize that this book is not just good instruction for your life. This book is about your life. The parallel passage that we're looking at here, 
the one in Matthew, the parallel passage in Luke, shows us that what Jesus is telling his disciples, he learned from the scriptures. It says, listen to the similarity. Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So where does Jesus get this understanding of all that's going to happen to him? Does he get it from a vision or some premonition? No. He gets everything from the scriptures. Everything that is written about the Son of Man from the prophets. Can you imagine Jesus reading Isaiah? Can you imagine him reading through and thinking on the servant songs? The Lord called me from the womb. He said to me, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people. You as a light to the nations. And that same servant song that talks about the Messiah being uh, taught by God. It says the Lord God has opened my ear. He taught me. He's opened my ear. And I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. No, guess what I did? I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who Pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And then Isaiah 53. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form so marred beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected. By men, man of sorrows, stricken, smitten by God. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And like a lamb led to his slaughter, his soul makes an offering for guilt. He poured out his soul to death. It was numbered among the transgressors, cut off from the land of the living, and they made his grave with the wicked. <clears throat> about the Psalms? How many times you sat and just meditated on the Psalms? Just always apply them to yourself, too. you imagine Jesus meditating on the song? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are dried up and out of joint. My heart's like wax. Melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 69. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat's parched. My eyes grow dim. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Reproaches have broken my heart. I'm in despair. I look for pity, but there's none. I look for comforters, and I found none. They gave me poisonous food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. 
You have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near the shield. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. They're cut off from your hand. You have, you, Lord, you have put me in the depths of the pit, the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and overwhelm me with all your waves. I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me. Darkness has become my only companion. Jesus knows what's coming. And why is he talking about it now? You know, sometimes you've got to ask the question, like, why is this here? And I don't mean just, why is this in the Bible? But why is it here in the Bible? Why is it right here? Why is Jesus talking to his disciples about this now? And i got three reasons for that. And probably the main one is, Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Jesus knows exactly what lies ahead and he knows his time. Another way of saying it is that Jesus has made the turn. There's a phrase in golf. If you want to know more, ask you later. There's a phrase in golf called the turn. On an 18-hole golf course, you make the turn at the halfway point, after you finish hole number nine, you make the turn. And, and most golf courses are designed in such a way that hole number one and hole number nine and hole number 18 are near the clubhouse. And so when you finish the first nine holes, you're back near the clubhouse and you make the turn onto the back nine. Here we see Jesus has made the turn. He's on the back nine of his mission on earth. He's on his way to Jerusalem. You see that look in the verse, first two verses. He said, he says that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. So that's where they headed. That's where they're headed. And this whole section beginning, flip over to, to chapter 16. This whole section beginning with Peter's confession in chapter 16 all the way to the end of chapter 20 is Matthew's version of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. That's what we're in the middle of right now. And look at verse 13. Chapter 16, 13. Where are they? Where is Jesus and his disciples? They're in Caesarea Philippi. And everybody knows where that's at, right? This is why you got the Bible maps in the back. This is one of the most northern edges of the ministry of Jesus Christ, of the public ministry of his, uh, of his earthly mission. And this is where Peter makes this great confession that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And this is where Jesus makes the turn south. This is when and this is where he begins to head toward Jerusalem for the last time. And this is also when he begins to reveal to them what's going to happen to him when he gets there. You see that shift in verse 21. Chapter 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, Makes the turn. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Now, if you thought it was serious to follow Jesus before chapter 16, it just got real. And before they even set first foot on the road toward Jerusalem, he tells them, if anyone would come after me, like here we go, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Headed to Jerusalem. In chapter 17, he shows his glory in this transfiguration to his inner circle. And as they come down from the mountain, he tells them again, he's going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. In 1722, he, he begins this move south. And then he's back in Galilee. And he tells them again that he's going to be killed and raised on the third day. And then in chapter 19, they leave Galilee, heading further south. And they enter the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And it says in chapter 19, large crowds join him. Large crowds follow him. Why did large crowds follow him? Well, one reason is he's healing everybody. But the other reason is Passover. Everybody's heading to Jerusalem. It's just not just Jesus going to Jerusalem. Everybody's heading to Jerusalem for Passover. And so the closer they get to Jerusalem, the larger the crowds become on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. This is why you see this wording. So back, back to our text in 20. This is why you see this wording in verse 17, when he's going up to Jerusalem, he says he took the 12 disciples aside out of the midst of the throngs that are following him towards Passover. So he's talking to the 12, it said, he's talking to the 12 privately. He knows everything that's about to happen to him and he's trying to prepare them for it. You see, he's trying to prepare them. Of course, it's not clicking. But he's trying to prepare them for what's going to happen. He's saying, look, the time is at hand. Look, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm about to be handed over and condemned and beaten and crucified. We're just days away from that now. And so they're, so they're, near, they're near the Jordan River. They're, they're coming closer to Jericho. They're coming closer and closer to Jerusalem. Even closer to this most important moment in history. And Jesus is moving closer to that great day of suffering he'd read about in the scriptures. All now, as you can see, in the rest of chapter 20, the disciples still don't get it. But Jesus does. Jesus has set his face like flame toward Jerusalem. You ever heard that phrase before? Set his face like flame. You know where that comes from? That comes from that same servant song that I read a little bit from a while ago about the Messiah being taught by God. In that same setting, it says, The Lord opened my ear. The Lord opened my ear. And I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who strike and my beard to those who pull out, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I, I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. He goes on to say, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. For he who vindicates me is near. That's where it comes from. This is a prophecy. From Isaiah. This is a prophecy from Isaiah that shows us the glory of Christ by helping us to understand what's really going on in this moment as Jesus foretells his death on this final approach to Jerusalem. The servant, the, the Messiah, the one who's been taught by God from the scriptures, the one who's increased in knowledge and wisdom and an understanding of his mission. And as horrific as it is, he does not rebel against the will of God. 
Instead, with voluntary resolve and power from heaven and an unshakable trust in the Lord his God, he steps forward. Setting his face like flint. Luke picks up on this. Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, we can't imagine what's going on in Jesus' soul at this time, as his time draws near. But man, we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse of the intensity right now in the other parallel passages. And I want you to look. This is the one time I'm going to ask you to turn. But turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. This is a parallel to the same passage we studied today. Notice in Mark chapter 10, verse 31. Jesus has just finished talking about how the first will be last and the last first. Just like in Matthew. And then, right before Jesus talks about his death, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, gives us this awesome little detail on the road to Jerusalem. Right before Jesus pulls his disciples aside and begins to tell them again about his death. Look at verse 32. Pay attention to what is going on here. It says, and, as, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Please, please get that scene in your head with the backstory of what's going on here. Jesus grew in wisdom and scriptures. He knows all that's going to happen to him. And he's now set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. The, the crowds, they're heading to Passover. But their Passover is not going to be anything like his Passover. The crowds are probably expecting just another beautiful day on the road to Jerusalem. The disciples are back there probably resuming their thoughts. Are resuming their conversations on who's the greatest? Where's Jesus? He's up ahead all along. It says Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is walking ahead of them, face set like flint. He's all alone, but he's in front. He's not dragging his feet. He's not bringing up the rear. He's not going really slow. He's leading the way. And there's something different about his demeanor. There's, there's something different about his posture or his countenance or the way he's carrying himself because it says they were amazed. And those that followed were afraid. And so something about Jesus, the way he's walking ahead of him in solitude, is somehow creating awe in them. One commentator says, these feelings must have been awakened by the manner of Jesus. As one laboring under strong emotion. He walks alone by preference, step and gesture, revealing what is working with him. Inspiring Another commentator says, The Lord walked in advance of the twelve with a solemnity and determination which foreboded danger. They began to fear the coming disaster as they neared Jerusalem. They read correctly the face of Jesus. His face that light flint towards Jerusalem. The Lamb of God is heading to Passover. This is what's going on. The Lamb of God is heading to Passover. Everybody else is heading to Passover, but they're not the Lamb of God. The second reason Jesus is saying this here 
is he's put forward this great example of what he's been teaching them about the first will be last. He's, he sort of revealed this principle over the last few chapters in, in this kingdom principle in several different ways. And one part about this principle is this, that only those who humble themselves will enter the kingdom of God. He said it several different ways. One was take up your cross and follow me. He said, whoever's going to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake is going to gain it or find it. Whoever humbles himself like a little child is the greatest. And then he said, rich young ruler won't become last. He won't give up his possessions. He forfeits heaven. And then you see the disciples, they say, we gave up everything. He says, you get eternal life. First will be last and last will be first. And now Jesus is going to, he's foretelling something that he's going to put himself forward as the ultimate example of this self-sacrificial humiliation for the kingdom of God. So let's be clear. There is nobody more first than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? And there is nobody that made himself more loved or more last than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I don't want you to miss this incredible, humiliating contrast in what's being communicated to the disciples on the road to Jerusalem. They're fighting over who's the greatest. They're full of spiritual pride over what they're giving up for Jesus. Yet they're not seeing this cosmic condescension of the Son of God, the one who's leading the way to Jerusalem. They're not even seeing it. I mean, they've confessed Him to be the Son of the living God. They witnessed Him transfigured from, with glory from within. He Himself has declared Himself to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one who's going to sit on an eternal glorious throne of the ancient of days, and here he is on earth. Here he is walking on a little dirt road, heading towards this pitiful little cluster of human habitation called Jerusalem. And he's about to, he's telling me, he's about to allow himself to be handed over to some of his own rebellious creatures. To spit on him and mock him and pull his beard out and beat him and staple him to a tree. All to save. All to save sinners. Which is his third reason he's telling us this. He's foretelling where all this grace is going to come from. The parable from, from last week, Ryan showed us that this parable of the laborers in the vineyard is about God's sovereign grace toward sinners. You can see that in verse 15. It's talking about the master being generous and sovereign. Am I not allowed to choose to give to whomever? To give what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? That parable is about uh, God's generosity to those who don't deserve God's generosity. It's talking about those that are full of spiritual pride who wrongly think they deserve God's grace. And so here's two reminders. Here's a reminder of two wrong ways to think about God's grace. One is to beware. Beware of thinking that you deserve anything more than hell. Beware of thinking that you deserve anything more than hell from a holy God. All have sinned. Right? Everybody in this room knows that verse. All have sinned against God. Guess what? Sinners go to hell. Period. There's not for grace. Every moment. We avoid eternal damnation is only because God is slow to anger and or Jesus died for your sins. 
And so beware of thinking you deserve more than hell. And also beware of thinking that this grace, that God's grace towards you is free. Beware of thinking that God's grace towards sinners is free. It's not free. It's free to you. But God's grace towards sinners is the most costly thing ever imagined. The grace we receive comes at the expense of God's only begotten Son. The one walking on the road toward Jerusalem. God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Our sin is wrapped up the biggest debt in history. And what Jesus is foretelling here is how the price gets paid. It's how the price of forgiveness comes. What is about to happen to Jesus is going to provide for the riches of God's grace. Now, what is going to happen to Jesus? Like, this is why he's telling us. Now, what is he telling us is going to happen? He knows exactly what's going to happen. And there's this growing sense of intensity and immediacy. He's saying, look, we're about to be in Jerusalem. This is about to happen. And he gives the disciples here more details than ever before. And so here he is. He's using this, his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Excuse me. Yeah, Daniel 7. And he gives seven details. Verses 18 and 19. First detail is he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be betrayed and delivered over to the Jewish leaders. Listen. Listen to this heartbreaking account of betrayal. That Jesus would have been very familiar with from the Psalms. It says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I can hide from him. But it is you. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion. My familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked together. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, He's lifted up his heel. Don't miss this detail in verse 17. He took the 12. He took the 12 disciples aside. He's telling them. Judas is here. Judas is in this group. The one that's going to betray him. The one that's going to fulfill those prophecies is right there. And in just a few days... As they take of the Lord's Supper, Satan himself is going to enter Judas and betray Christ for a measly 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave that's been gored by an ox. Betrayed with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then led away under the cover of night to this sham trial in the Jewish council, which is detail number two. Jesus is going to be condemned to death under the law. Later in Matthew 26, we will see this so-called trial. You got the chief priest and the whole council, and it says they're seeking false testimony. Many great powers telling lies. They're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward. Interestingly enough, it's Jesus' testimony that condemns him under the law. And he's condemned to death under the law for telling the truth. The, the high priest says to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, You said so. 
high priest rips his robe and says he's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? The only witness they have is Jesus telling the truth. And they pronounce judgment according to God's law saying he deserves death. How ironic. Lawless men convict God in the flesh for blasphemy according to his law. The punishment for blasphemy is a public stoning by the whole congregation. And again, ironically, they can't execute that. Israel is under Roman rule. They can't execute their own criminals, which means they couldn't stone Jesus. He had to be executed by the Romans, which means he had to be crucified. He had to be hung on a tree, which, according to God's law, is a sign that man is cursed by God. And so he was. Detail three. He's going to be rejected by Israel and delivered to the Gentiles. Psalm 2 predicts this. Israel and the Gentiles, the rulers and the people are all going to conspire against the Christ and Israel is going to reject his own Messiah. He's going to be despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53 says. John reminds us, he says, Jesus came to his own and his own people received him not. He's going to be condemned. The Messiah is going to be condemned by the leaders of Israel. But unable to execute him, they're going to bind him up and deliver him over the Romans. Detail four. He says he's going to be mocked. Jesus will be mocked and treated shamefully by all. The parallel account says he's going to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. All this falls under this mocking, this treatment of contempt towards him. I read Psalm 22 a little while ago. You, you know Jesus is familiar with Psalm 22. It says, all who see me mock me. I just saw that. Just noticed that the first time, isn't it? It says, all who see me mock me. Man. It's so true. Jesus is mocked by the Jewish council guards who blindfold him and beat him in the head and say, prophesy, tell us who hit you. He's mocked by Herod and his soldiers. They dress him up in all these fancy clothes and treat him with contempt, ship him back to Pilate. He's mocked by the Roman soldiers who strip him down, robe him in purple, put a crown of thorns on his head, and bow down and fall to worship, saying, oh, hell, King Jesus. He's mocked by Pilate who brought this beaten, crowned with thorns, Jesus out in front of Jews and says, hey, behold your king. And it's also Pilate who put that sign, that ironic sign above his head on the cross that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And he was mocked by all the onlookers at the cross. They wagged their heads and said, if you're the son of God, come down. He's mocked by the priests and the scribes and the elders at the cross. He said, he saved others and can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Come on down. He's mocked by the Roman soldiers at the cross who offered him sour wine and says, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even the two thieves on each side of him being crucified, they joined in to the same revival. All mocked me. The fifth detail he shows us here is that he's going to be repeatedly and mercilessly beaten. He uses the word flogged 
which means to be beaten with a whip. But take note, Jesus was beaten in just about every different way you can imagine to beat a man. Repeatedly. Struck with a whip, scourged with a cat of nine tails, slapped with an open hand, hit with a fist, beaten with rods. It's like everywhere they moved him, they beat him. It's like your turn. Your turn. That very first moment, they lead him to the high priest's father-in-law. And so it strikes him with an open hand. The Jewish council guards blindfold him and hit him with, with their fists. The Roman soldiers mock him with the crown of thorns and they beat him in the head with a rod. When Pilate releases Barabbas, they deliver Jesus to be crucified. But first they scourge him. Which means to basically rip him to shreds with a cat of nine tails. And all of that is before detail number six. He's going to be crucified. Nailed to a tree. Cursed by God. We're so familiar with that word crucified. But it literally means just to set up a stake. To take a log or a tree or a pole. Stand it up. And when you apply that to execution on the other hand. It means to hang or impale or nail a man to that tree. I want you to get the rawness of that. You take a log and you stand it up and you nail a man to it. And hang that. All day. In front of everybody. Until he either suffocates or bleeds out and dies. This is where Jesus is headed. All this is where he's headed. And as horrific as it is physically being nailed to a tree. Thousands of years before wicked men invent such a cruel form of public execution, God had already ordained in the law that a man that's hung on a tree is cursed by God. The son of Eve the son of Adam, excuse me, the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God is going to be betrayed, rejected, mocked, beaten, nailed to a tree, cursed by God, and finally pierced through the heart. And they're going to take his dead, lifeless body down from the tree, and they're going to bury him in a rich man's tomb. Surely the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be killed. That's not the end of the story. That last detail says Jesus will be raised from the dead on the third day. Like Psalm 88 predicted, darkness will become His only companion. God struck the shepherd and all the sheep scattered. Jesus is telling them for the third or fourth time all that's going to happen to him, including being raised from the dead, but it's going to be Christ alone in the darkness of the grave. And not one, not one of them who heard this is going to be standing outside that tomb waiting on that morning of the third day. Yet, just as the scriptures promised, just as Jesus foretold, and just as Peter would later preach, God raised him up. God raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God raised him up, and more than that, God exalted the man Christ Jesus even to the right hand of God. The first became last, and the last the Son of Man would attain His glorious throne through a tree, through the grave. Suffering, then glory. Suffering.
suffering through the Lord. We've said that many times from this pulpit. The path to glory is through suffering. Now, why is all this going to happen to Jesus? I've answered it already, but you've heard it before. This is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel that the Son of God really did love me and He really did give Himself up for me. All this is going to happen for us. You see, we're the ones, you and me, we're the ones who deserve what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. We're the ones who betrayed God. We're the ones who rejected Christ. We're the ones that are blasphemers, sons of disobedience. We're the ones condemned by the law. We're the ones who deserve to be mocked and treated shamefully before the hosts of heavens. We're the ones who deserve to be ruthlessly and repeatedly beaten. We're the ones who deserve to be nailed to a tree and cursed by God. Matter of fact, we are. We're the ones who deserve to be buried and forgotten. Forever cast in the outer darkness. But what should have happened to us happened to him instead. This is the gospel. Jesus is foretelling the gospel. The Son of God was betrayed and rejected in our place. The Holy One who knew no sin was made to be our sin and became a curse for us. He was beaten and whipped for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's not His. The chastisement that belongs to us laid on Him. He's delivered up what he says is going to happen. He's going to be delivered up for our transpassions and raised for our justification. As Jesus himself will say, as he's on the doorstep to Jerusalem, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. Now, one last thing to consider. Dustin pointed out, I need a comma right here. And it's number five. How did Jesus continue? Comma or semicolon. Knowing all that would happen. In other words, if you knew everything in the way, if you knew that was coming in Jerusalem, what would you do? Would you set your face like flat toward Jerusalem or palm in? I mean, how long was... Christ aware of what he would face? How many times did he have the opportunity to change his mind? How many times did he have an opportunity to avoid the suffering? How many times did the devil himself tempt him to turn another way? I mean, would the Father still have loved him? Would he still be glorified forever? Would the angels in heaven still cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Would that, would that go away? Yet even when he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane with the footsteps of Judas and his crew in the background, he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How did he do that? How did he continue? How was he so resolved? It's because he knew all that would happen to him. Note, I said the word all. He knew all that would happen to him. He knew from the scriptures he would suffer and be crucified. He also knew he'd be raised from the dead on the third day. He knew he would be vindicated. He knew he would be exalted. And therefore, he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And he also knew his finished work would save his people from their sins. That was his name. That's what God said. You call his name Jesus. Yeshua. 
for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. That's how he set his face like Flint. That's how he continued for the joy set before him. The Bible tells us explicitly, Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In, in one of his many prayers that night on the way to the cross, 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And so he has. And so Jesus now sits there. Promise fulfilled. Sits there at the right hand of God. Full of joy as he continues to bring many sons to glory. As a result of him setting his face like him. And accomplishing the will of the Father. Now, three ways that this should land on you. Three ways that you should respond. The first is to come to Christ. Like if, you're, if you're here right now, and you are not a Christian, you're, you know you're not a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, let me remind you of something. You have sinned against God every day of your life. You are on the very doorstep of the judgment of God against your sin. And you need a Savior. And this moment Jesus is talking about is for you. Hear that, please. Hear that, please. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, He was standing on a dirt road near Jericho. Looking towards Jerusalem, about to die for sinners just like you on the cross. Man, I know if you're here today and you're if you live in America, you've probably heard this many times. But it's time to stop ignoring Jesus Christ. It's time to stop ignoring the glorious Son of God just because you love your sin. I know what you're doing. Stop doing that. Today is the day. Resolve right now. Hear me, sinner. Resolve right now to stop playing the sin. Stop denying the judgment. Stop ignoring the Son of God. You set your face like sin. And I'm going to leave the world. I'm going to leave this sin behind. I'm going to come to Jesus Christ. Finally. That's it. I'm coming. Come and die to your sin and live to righteousness. Come to the glorious Son of God. The one who died for you. The one who set his face to come. Save you. Come to him. Those that know Him, those that do know Christ, man, worship Him. Worship Jesus Christ. Worship with wonder this incarnation. Fully God, fully man. The one who knows all things. The one who grew in wisdom. The one who is God that trusted God. The one who has all power that was crucified in weakness. The one who died on the cross who has life in Himself. Worship the incarnate Christ, the man Christ Jesus, and worship his incredible resolve to save sinners. He's tempted in every way yet without sin. He's tempted in every way yet he doesn't turn back. If he doesn't fulfill that, that, that certain song in Isaiah about setting his face, we all die in our sins. This moment in Jerusalem where the intensity is beginning to grow on him, if he changes his mind right here, we're done. Glory be to God. Worship is love. He's doing this out of love. In love, the Father sent the Son. In love, the Son came. And he went all the way to Jerusalem. 
One would scarcely die for a righteous person. But even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The glorious, eternal Son of God really does love us. He really did give Himself up for us. And last, those of you that know Jesus Christ, imitate Him. We're called to imitate Christ. We're predestined to be like Him. And that's starting. That's started. Imitate His faith. Imitate the faith of the man Christ Jesus. He knew the Scriptures. He believed the Scriptures. He trusted His Heavenly Father. In perfect faith, He walked in the works prepared before Him. We should do the same. We have these promises from God. Listen, you already know what's going to happen to you. You understand that? You already know what's going to happen to you. The Bible tells you what's going to happen to you. Now, we don't have all the details. We don't have all the details that like Jesus had about his life. But we have all we need for the life now and for the life to come. Believe the promises of God and live like you believe the promises of God. So be filled with the faith of Christ and then imitate his resolve. Imitate the resolve of Christ. And man, a perfect text to connect the faith of Christ with the resolve of Christ is Colossians 1. Excuse me, Colossians 3 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you believe that? If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Set your face toward the things that are above. Be resolved to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Be resolved to seek the kingdom of God first and His righteousness. Be resolved to fight the good fight of faith and finish the course. To come to the end well. End well and strong and fruitful. Be resolved to suffer. Be resolved to suffer well for the joy set before you. Looking always to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are weak, Lord. We are weak. We're full of unbelief. But your word is true and your son is glorious. Praise you for the grace that we've come to know him. God, help Christ to be worshipped in this place. Help Christ to be worshipped in this church. Help, him to be, help us to be imitators of Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your resolve to take away my sin. You are the Lamb of God. You are the Lamb of God, a mighty warrior, a conquering king. May you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.